I wanted to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from my home in what's now known as Victoria in British Columbia, Canada, which is the territories of the Lakonan peoples, um, the unceded lands and seas of the Lakonan peoples, whose relationship with the land and sea continues to this day. And also my own personal um, my own personal view is to attempt to follow up on that acknowledgement by dedicating much of my work to helping reconciliation efforts and trying to work towards doing anti-colonial research that rights some of those past wrongs. Hey everyone, this is Michael for the In Common Podcast. The statement you just heard was made by Natalie Ban, the guest for this episode. Natalie is an old friend and colleague of mine and a professor of environmental studies at the University of Victoria, located on the breathtakingly beautiful Vancouver Island. During our conversation, Natalie talked to me about her work with coastal indigenous communities in British Columbia and the importance she places on engaging with her local partners in the right way, without imposing her own research questions or hypotheses, looking for windows of opportunity for her work and trying to make sure that her work has local value. Natalie also described a distinction between two fundamentally different ways of viewing resource use and management. One that views use as extractive and detrimental, which then motivates a whole range of remedial activities. And the other which combines use with stewardship, as the indigenous communities that Natalie works with do. To me, the importance of the use as stewardship model is that if we don't get to this point, then really we are just trying to be less bad about our extractions and deteriorations of the natural environment. We can't keep doing bad things and then try to remediate them. At some point, we have to stop doing bad things. This is the In Common Podcast. Yeah, so maybe I will start by introducing myself a little bit because I think it sets the context for some of my interests and in the, the work that I've done. Hmm. Um, I am Canadian on my father's side. I think it's my great, great, great grandparents that came to Canada as settlers and German on my mother's side. And uh, I am non-Indigenous, but partner a lot with Indigenous peoples. So a, a general caveat, as an, an ex, uh, disclaimer for anything I might be about to say is that not being Indigenous, I do not represent any of the peoples that I've worked with and nothing that I say should be interpreted as speaking on their behalf. Um, but that doesn't get at your specific question. So my, my PhD was in the University of British Columbia, what was then known as the Fisheries Center, which is now the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries. And the topic was basically re-envisioning marine protected areas. So asking, um, thinking about different ways of prioritizing places for protection. On the one hand, using data that we had for biodiversity, so mostly species distributions and um, ecosystem habitat types and so on. And then on the other hand, partnering with a couple of indigenous peoples on the coast of British Columbia to ask knowledge holders about what places they would like to protect and why and what kind of protection and then seeing how those differed or aligned and whether there was a way to um, make them sort of weave together these two different approaches, the quote unquote science-based and more indigenous knowledge focused approach. 
And in your work, have you perceived a tension between those approaches? I mean, I think there's a discourse in the field that those approaches are often in tension with each other. They can be, but I found them to be fairly complementary in the case studies that I was looking at. Um, certainly, there's different philosophies behind thinking things in our more Western science context compared to the worldviews of um, some indigenous peoples. So we tend to we tend to still think about, I mean, not so much in the commons world, but many people still think about people as being separate from nature and that mm -hmm. biodiversity conservation is only about all the non-human beings and trying to make sure that those survive into the future, which makes it seem as though there's a complete disconnect between people using the environment and all the species that live within it. Right. I mean, Natalie, is it fair to say from that perspective, human beings can sometimes be seen as a threat to, bio I mean, as a threat to biodiversity if we're not including them in our calculations for preserving biodiversity? Well, I would say that in conservation, humans are generally seen as a threat to biodiversity, and right. hence the approach is to exclude people. Whereas what I've learned from many of my indigenous partners is that they might say it's a threat if people are not using the environment, if they're disconnected, because use is, means care and use means stewardship. So you can... Um, by excluding people, it means they're not there to take care of those. So places. Natalie, I've seen this in some of your writings, a concern that you've expressed about shoehorning traditional perspectives into the Western perspective. Did you perceive that possibility here when you and were you sensitive to it? And was that a concern for you when you were trying to kind of combine these things? Yeah, and, th and that's why the combining wasn't just me doing it. It was also taking those results back to people and seeing what they thought about different approaches. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's uh, This is this approach that's fairly similar to what's been continuing and still occurring in, in the marine protected area planning process on the British Columbia coast, which again tries to combine some of the indigenous priorities with the science-based conservation design principles. Um, and it's, so it's actually some of that early work has informed how things are moving along. I'm not sure, I, I can't necessarily say that that was my influence, but I think it was also driven by many of the interests of the indigenous partners in this work, because they want to make sure that places of importance to them are protected in whatever that means, um, but also care about the some of the conservation science that has been done to ensure that all living creatures get to persist into the future. Mm. So Natalie, when you think about really your life leading up to the PhD and the work that you did for the PhD, like how do you make sense of why you decided to um, focus on this type of project? Like, did you have previous experiences that were um, kind of inspirational and informative to you that led you to want to do this kind of thing? For sure, I think most of us do, which is why we're doing what we're doing. Um, before doing my PhD, I worked for an environmental um, not-for-profit organization, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, British Columbia chapter, for four years. And I was working on their marine campaigns, thinking about some um, marine protected areas and knowing how little is actually protected in our waters here in British Columbia, um, which... Uh, got me to 
create relationships with a bunch of different people through my work there. Working in a small NGO meant not only that I, I was able to get background about you know, how things tend to work in conservation and what buttons need to get pushed to move things forward, but also being in a small NGO meant meeting people within government, within First Nations, in a whole variety of different realms. So, and ultimately, partnering with First Nations is all about relationships and trust. Um, and I think the only reason I was able to do that is because I had met people through some of my earlier work through this Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. So I think um, having worked for a small NGO and also realizing just how slow things are in trying to affect change meant that I had an amazing experience for the four years that I was there, but was itching to be able to guide some of my own work in terms of realizing all the gaps that exist and to, from the, the research angle see if I could help to meet some of those gaps to, I, in the very idealistic sense, attempt to create a better world for humans and the ocean. So Natalie, in that work, was that the first time that you um, really engaged with um, the relationship between Canada and First Nations, or had you learned about that a lot before? So in my work for the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, a lot of those issues were front and center. Mm -hmm. um, and even more so, that was one of the pieces that I wanted to know more about and pick up on in the research that I then pursued in doing my PhD. So it was definitely something I was exposed to through work and, and then through my own learning, and which is still ongoing always, uh, through my own learning by doing the PhD. Mm. I think it's actually changed quite a bit. A lot, a lot more emphasis exists now in both the school system here in British Columbia and Canada more generally and at the university level in learning about some of the past histories and um, complex relationships that exist. Yeah, so Natalie, if someone was going to try to understand your work and um, you were going to talk to them about the relevant aspects of, of the historical relationship between First Nations and Canada. Like, what are some points that you think that they should know in order to understand, you know, your work and what's happening now? Yeah, great question. I could talk a long time about this, but I guess in a nutshell, I think it's really important to understand at least some aspects of our history. And that's not only Canada, it's all countries, but especially those that have been colonized. So Canada, and this part of Canada was colonized by the British. And um, there was a more recent Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada about missing and especially missing and murdered Indigenous women and other issues. And it, it's put the words to Canadian history to say that um, the colonial history attempted genocide of Indigenous peoples. And uh, a lot of that um, has obviously continues to affect Indigenous peoples throughout the world, but here specifically in Canada. So just a, a few examples of that that are critically important in thinking about any kind of conservation or management of the commons or fisheries or on land um, is that in Indigenous peoples lived and still continue to live throughout all of Canada and pretty much no matter where you go, it's the land or, and seas of indigenous peoples. 
some of the early diseases that colonizers brought and settlers and travelers brought in parts of the coast here probably decimated people up to 90%. So it's huge death rate at those times. And then a lot of other pressures on top of that, some of the most atrocious ones are um, making it illegal for indigenous peoples to continue their practices such as potlatching, which is a key uh, governance mechanism, um, making it illegal to have some of their ceremonies, and then confining indigenous peoples to um, what were then called Indian reserves. So basically on the coast, that was very small parcels of land that might have been their villages, but all other land was no longer considered theirs, it was that of the colonizer. Plus then taking children away to put them in residential schools where they were abused, beaten for speaking their languages, and in general made to feel um, like their cultures were not worthy, that they were inferior. This was the, the definitely the genocide aspect of this. And, uh, and much more. So basically, the authority of indigenous peoples to manage their lands and seas has been attempted to be completely undermined. So what is quite amazing to see is despite all of those historical atrocities, that much of the indigenous worldviews and practices persist in some way and people continue them hidden in various different forms because they're so important to them and that's how they live. So it's, uh, there's a lot of, um, of course, it's tough because there's a lot of knowledge that was not passed on when children were away in residential school and families were torn apart. But despite that, much of it still persists. And there's a huge revitalization right now where indigenous peoples are really bringing back their cultural practices. And it's, it's truly inspiring, just despite all of that um, awful history that the spark remains, people are taking it back. Like, okay, we, um, and so some of the most inspirational leaders I know are First Nations people that are working to save their cultures and the environment because those are so entwined with one another. You can't have one without the other. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot there. I think this has been an important critique of the commons literature for as long as I've been a part of it, is that it's um, really too, too ahistorical and doesn't deal enough with power. And of course, as you just described, history and power and power dynamics uh, go together. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's very true. And another critique I might add to some of the commons work, not all of it, but some of it, is that it's really about studying people's practices and institutions. So it's, it's uh, people are the, the subject of the work. They're not often partners in the work. And um, part of the history with indigenous peoples too is that research is still in many places considered a bad word <laughs> because uh, researchers have in some cases completely um, harmed indigenous peoples by being unethical and doing things that they didn't have permission to do. Um, but in many cases, it's you know, what some people now are calling um, helicopter research or parachute research, where you have outsiders coming in, talking to people, studying stuff, taking information, 
um, leaving again and never even reporting back what they've done or what they've found. So that's definitely one of the things that I'm trying really hard to do in my work is um, to have true partnerships. I, I don't tend to formulate research questions myself and then say, hey, I want to study this. Can we work together? It's um, much more of a partnership of thinking about what, are, what gaps are you interested in addressing and do I have any skills or capacity to help address those? Um, okay, have you ever received pushback, Natalie, for that from, from someone saying like, well, that's not scientific enough? I haven't, but I mean, in general, you see that critique um, by those who think science ought to be objective. And I, I don't think it ever is because even our own human act of deciding what questions to ask is subjective. So, mm. you know, what each of us are interested in and what we decide to study also is subjective because those are our interests and that's what guide, guides us. I would dare say that um, really no science is objective. Your approach can attempt to be objective. And I would say that continues with the work that I do. Once we've decided what uh, questions to ask and what approach to take, I've never had the expectation that I would have specific results come out of it. It's we do the research and then we see what results emerge. So it's not as though it's a foregone conclusion what I'm going to find. Um, which I think is important because otherwise it would be perhaps quite biased work. Okay. I mean, so Natalie, I also want to weave in more of your own history. So you were at University of British Columbia and then the next stop that I'm aware that you took is to go to Australia. So rather far away from Canada to James Cook. And then you went back to Canada to where you are now to be a professor in the environmental studies program at the University of uh, Victoria. I think I have all that right. <laughs> You've got it right. So to cover your time um, in Australia, was that a departure from this research program that you then returned to once you kind of geographically returned to Canada? Yeah, so I, uh, I had a plan A, which was um, after having moved to British Columbia um, for the, the work that I mentioned with the NGO and um, then doing my PhD here, I really fell in love with this place. And I knew I wanted to live and in the long term work in British Columbia. Um, Can I, I ask you, I'm sorry, Natalie. Can I ask you what you fell in love with? Like it's what? so beautiful. The coast and the people, um, the mountains and the water, and then the cultural history of um, the places, so that combination is really quite something. So I knew that in the long run, I, I really enjoyed doing research and I wanted to be here in British Columbia in a research capacity, ideally. So the, the hope was to get an academic position in British Columbia, but I also knew that I was unlikely to get a position if I only had experience here because I'd be seen as a very local candidates who might not bring anything additional to whatever position. So um, in addition to wanting to learn from a place that is often upheld as one of the prime examples of marine conservation in the world, which is Australia, uh, I decided to go to Australia to, to do my postdoctoral work and to focus more on the conservation planning angle that I had 
touched on a bit on my PhD, um, but knew that that's where people in Australia have such a wealth of experience. And the, the people I was working with, especially Bob Pressey and um, others that I partnered with, such as folks from the group of Hugh Possingham, are really some of the world leaders in conservation planning and thinking through both the ecologically important aspects of that, as well as bringing social dimensions into it. So I spent four years at James Cook University, and a fair bit of my work there was almost more conceptual and working with existing data. So less of the field-based work that I had done before that in British Columbia. I kept my toe in the water, so to speak, in um, issues in British Columbia through a, a couple of different ongoing projects that I kept up while I was a postdoc, but not, um, I didn't have field work then here back in British Columbia. And the amazing <laughs> thing is that my plan A worked out. I uh, ended up getting this position in um, ethnoecology at the University of Victoria. And uh, yeah, I, I never really had a plan B and I thankfully didn't need one. So it can happen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember chatting with you about that when that happened. I mean, so Nat Natalie, based on your work in Australia, did, did your involvement with those folks there change your views on conservation planning? Like, how did that develop while you were there? So I feel like I learned a ton of additional work in, on uh, conservation planning in addition to being more exposed to the work on resilience and common scholarship, because a lot of people there are engaged in those multiple different kinds of fields. So I found myself having tremendous growth in um, being exposed to and engaging with various different literatures, resilience, um, some of the institutional analysis work, and then conservation planning. Um, what I didn't really have there is that engagement with the original stewards of the lands and seas, uh, which is what I was drawn to here in, in British Columbia. So it was almost a bit of a step back from the more field engaged work to exploring more of the theoretical scholarship and, um, and sometimes idealized thinking and practices related to conservation planning. Some of the yeah. academic literature, I think, is really helpful in pushing the envelope about what is possible, but doesn't necessarily reflect the realities of the data and timing that people who are doing that planning um, have. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point, Natalie. I, I think it's so easy to fall into kind of, I would call it the planning trap and coming up with an idealized plan. And this is also a critique that's very common in the field. And to forget that where the rubber hits the road is, is at the implementation stage and the enforcement stage. And it's much easier to write up something that feels good. I mean, I've been in, in several different places in the world where people have told me like, look, we have these beautiful environmental laws. All we need to do is enforce them. In my head, I'm like, well, yeah, that's the hard part that's less prestigious and less well compensated. So that's why that's not happening. Did you have that critique in mind when you were talking to me about like this idealization or does that make sense to you or? Yeah, I, well, a lot of plans end up on the shelf. So in conservation planning, even when countries sometimes do plans, even if they're meant to be implemented, they're not always implemented. And so there's a lot of critique between the, the gap between conservation planning and implementation. 
and I uh, and all of that is pretty practical. So even you know very plans that are intended for uh, implementation may not ever be implemented. But uh, there's a similar gap between research and the kinds of ideas we might generate through research and um, the possibility of implementing any of that. And that's I I would say I was more involved in some of the theoretical and conceptual advances while doing my postdoc, and then when coming to uh, back to British Columbia to the University of Victoria, pivoting to do mostly very community engaged and applied research, which is often not quite as prestigious. It's unlikely to get you that, you know, science and nature paper because it's very place-based and very practical, but I think can still at the same time push a lot of interesting theoretical advances by working in contexts that reflect the, the quote-unquote real world. Yeah, I mean, so Natalie, do you think that's a problem that there's less um, prestige associated with very place-based work? I mean, I've heard critiques, right, like science and nature, they want like a big global map of some macro trend. Um, and it is true, I don't, I don't, you, don't seem to, you don't tend to see like ethnographies in there, for example. Is that, you know, should we, and you think, can we make progress on that front? Is that worth putting some time and energy into? Yeah, it's a good question. And I guess it depends on what kind of research matters. And I would say that it's not just research that makes it into the big sexy journals that matters. So I think it's really only a problem if, for researchers who want that prestige. And I don't really care. <laughs> uh, I, I'm much more happy to do work that is actually useful to, to people and relevant rather than makes that splashy impact. Yeah, I've often I mean, referred to them as like the glamour journals. Yeah, but on the other hand, if you do get something published in there, it can be highly uh, influential because then it gets picked up by news media and by governments and others. So I, th I think there's still a fair bit of a gap between the kind of work that journals like Science and Nature pick up from um, some of the sciences can be fairly equivalent of a case study in the social sciences. So there's sort of some pieces from scientific fields that they would publish where they don't publish equivalent social science research. I don't know if that makes sense. It, well, I think it does. Yeah, I'm just wondering why that would be. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I think in general, I guess there's less prestige associated with work that is more social science focused. And I mean, a lot of my work isn't even purely social science. <laughs> so I'll be working really at that interdisciplinary um, in the intersections of multiple disciplines and applied interests. Uh, it doesn't always have a place in such journals either. And I don't know if that's a problem. I don't really care so much as long as the work still makes an impact. And there's many other journals, of course, there's a proliferation of journals of all sorts. And um, many of them are also really high quality and reach a lot of people. Yeah. So Natalie, you mentioned a minute ago, your return to Victoria, your, your return to uh, British Columbia at the University of Victoria and the um, several different keywords I could use here, applied transdisciplinary on the ground work. Could you talk to me about um, how that work developed? I'm aware that you're working with um, one or two or several First Nation groups 
Um, how did that get off the ground? Did you start that field work based project like when you came to Victoria? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, um, partnered work is really all about building relationships. And because I had been in British Columbia for almost a decade before moving to Australia through the work at the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society and then my PhD, I had a fair number of contacts um, working on marine conservation issues, both within First Nations and in other um, organizations and government agencies. And it was actually when through the grapevine word got out that I was coming back to British Columbia that a colleague who was um, at the time working for an organization called the Central Coast Indigenous Resource Alliance, um, which is an association of four First Nations on the central coast of British Columbia. He contacted me and said, hey, I hear you're coming back. You want to do some work together? <laughs> so, uh, and I didn't even know him that well, but I guess my he knew me well enough to want to explore doing some work together. And, and that's kind of where it started. And plus, one of the First Nations with whom I partnered for my PhD research, same thing, heard that I was coming back. And we had stayed in touch over the years as well. And then um, thought about potential projects and what they were working on at the time and whether there was anything that my work could intersect with. And all of that resulted in um, various different on the ground partnered projects. And I'm aware via the, the readings that you shared with me that in some of these cases, what you're, what you're doing to a large degree is trying to formally document the social organization and resource management practices of First Nations. Um, yeah, so yeah, uh, was, was there a question to follow? <laughs> well, so I'm also aware, Natalie, that this process of documenting um, traditional practices relates to this tension that I was um, talking about earlier between those traditional practices and this more Western, in quote, scientific worldview. So what were your, the goals that you had in mind when you were doing this? And I'm aware that it's not just you, that the, the whole framework here is that this, these goals are presumably co-developed between you and local partners. So I guess the question would be like, how did, how did the research goals for this project kind of co-develop via your engagement with folks on the ground? Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm really trying to be guided by, and I think the direction of the research I'm partnered with um, is guided by potential policy windows of opportunity for change. And that might not always be reflected when you see the title of a paper, but there's strategy behind what is advantageous to publish from the perspective of the partnered nations. Because, I mean, these are um, societies that use oral history, so there's not always an interest in documenting things and writing them down because it isn't not, and, you know, people think differently on this as well in different nations, whether or not they want to have some documentation. And uh, one of the people I partnered with of the Kitasu Heihei's First Nation um, and other, other nations as well had been attempting to document a lot of their own practices and sort of write down their indigenous laws. Um, and part of the, where I came in and one of those projects was to um, do some, I guess, a sort of historical ecology research 
and coupled with some additional interviews to see what all that they had been able to compile. And this is through oral histories that they'd done through time that had been recorded through archival research in various different places, through the journals of some of the early explorers um, and a bunch of other kinds of sources to really the strategic opportunity here was to try to make other governments, the Canadian uh, federal and provincial governments realize that indigenous peoples have a long history of conservation and stewardship. I mean, it goes back to what you were mentioning earlier that use can be stewardship, that those don't have to be on opposite ends of a spectrum. Exactly, and I think trying to document some of that or at least have it as, um, well, let me back up. I guess some of the people I work with see a strategic opportunity in highlighting some things as peer-reviewed research because it gets some additional credibility. And some of the people that they have to negotiate with um, who work for government agencies such as Fisheries and Oceans Canada um, or various provincial agencies, they don't necessarily take the word of Indigenous knowledge holders at their face value. They um, see some of, unfortunately, see some of those as just anecdotes of what's happening. So by going through the peer review process and having papers published about some of this work and um, really valuing the, the long history of conservation and stewardship that indigenous peoples have had and continue to have on the coast, it's attempting to push some buttons to say, okay, you know, they should have recognized authority to continue doing these things, which they don't always. Okay, so Natalie, throughout this process, you're really, you are wearing multiple hats. There's the ethnography part, there's the ecology part, but then there's the kind of change agent part where you're actively trying to make your research synergistic with um, windows of opportunity, as you said. How do you kind of manage all that? Do you think about your positionality? Does, does one identity sometimes conflict with another one? Yeah, great question. I think about my positionality all the time and trying not to overstep in the work that I do as a non-Indigenous scholar. So really trying to be guided by Indigenous partners and also being totally fine if there are times when it's not appropriate to do work and um, there needs to be space for Indigenous peoples to do their own thing. And ideally, actually, the kind of work that I do in those partnerships wouldn't be needed because Indigenous peoples ought to be able to do it themselves and not need an academic non-Indigenous intermediary to pull some of those things together. Uh, but yeah, that there are multiple different hats and they haven't really conflicted yet, although I wouldn't be surprised if they do at some point in the future. I see them as all being entwined together. So it's kind of like a mesh of things that all work to support one another. And uh, so far, that's gone pretty well. I would have to say I don't always have a clear strategy, so I'm just fumbling along as you go, knowing that there's a research gap and there's some opportunity to push it, but not knowing exactly what that might look like. And often the actual agents of change are not necessarily me, but the Indigenous partners who often have relationships with um, the decision makers at government levels that can actually affect change. 
And so they could call a minister and say, hey, we need a meeting, whereas I could try but would not be, um, would not succeed in that. So they actually are the ones who can use the work that I help to pull together to affect change. And I think that's more appropriate than me attempting to do it on their behalf. Yeah, I mean, speaking of someone like a minister, does this work engage with other actors outside the First Nations, like um, governmental bureaucrats, technicians, extension agents, et cetera? Yeah, so uh, I've been talking mostly about my work that's partnered with Indigenous peoples, which for the most part has had Indigenous peoples as the primary partner, but I also have other projects that have other partners. So for instance, I um, had a student who was working with both with the Marine Protected Area technical team, which is federal government, provincial government, and First Nations on ecological connectivity um, and how we might take that into account in the Marine Protected Area planning process and how climate change might affect it. And another example is a, a fairly long-standing project on rockfish, which are some pretty cool fishes that uh, can be super long-lived up to more than 100 years old for some species. Um, a project there with a local NGO, the Galliano Conservancy Association, in trying to see how compliance is for these rockfish conservation area. And that morphed into a broader partnership that includes Fisheries and Oceans Canada, other researchers, and, um, and a recreational fishing organization called Anglers Atlas. So sort of different projects have different sorts of partners. Yeah, that's interesting, Natalie. And does your framework differ across these projects? For example, in the Rockfish project, are you more, is that more hypothesis driven? Do you think more about the comparability and generalizability of those findings than you say would with the First Nation project? Um, yeah, good question. I would say kind of each project differs in the attempted generalizability. I think a lot of them, it's kind of like any case study work where there, you know, there's just the age long tension between my case is unique and we can generalize everything. And I, I fall somewhere in between and the scale of where I fall probably depends on the project and how really context specific I think it is. Mm. Um, with the Rockfish project, it was actually pretty, also pretty cool because we've been working, we in this case is myself and students and the Galliano um, Conservancy Association have been working to try to improve compliance of rockfish conservation areas by also monitoring compliance. So they've been doing a lot of outreach and education and um, through student interviews with recreational fishers and putting up signage. And because we had data from before they started doing a lot of that outreach work um, and have been monitoring every summer, uh, both through interviews and through remote cameras that overlook rockfish conservation areas, we can kind of see how effective their outreach strategies are at affecting compliance. I mean, there might be a whole bunch of other things that we can't account for, but uh, so it's also not only a you know, hypothesis driven kind of a project, but trying to be very practical in affecting change while studying how effective those uh, interventions might be. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's something I've admired about you, Natalie. I think that this is something that academia needs to take more seriously is, is how to engage with the world and, and be a part of the changes that a lot of us write about in the PDFs that we publish. Um, getting back to your work, it, so it's, it's the Kitasu Heihei, that's, is that like your main case study? Yeah, that was one of the nations that I worked with and a couple of the papers that I shared with you um, mm -hmm. are with them. Um, um, but they are one of the four nations that are part of the Central Coast Indigenous Resource Alliance. And I've also had several projects with that, that were at that more regional scale and continue to talk with them and have a PhD student likely starting in September who's going to continue some work with uh, at that larger scale. And then also just north of the Kitasuhehe is with the Gitgat Nation. I've been partnering with them for quite some time, including for my PhD. So there's two questions I want to make sure to ask you about that work. The first is, what are the challenges that you face in doing that kind of work, personal, professional, or otherwise? Yeah, I think some of the challenges include wanting to make sure not to misstep or you know, being a non-Indigenous researcher and trying to create true partnerships you hope that the people that you're talking with are able to represent the needs of the community. And um, so far that's worked quite well, but I know that you have to be careful and that sometimes you might have a really enthusiastic individual who wants to do some work, but then that might not reflect the broader interest of the the community as a whole, which basically is just any community you work with is not going to be a homogenous unit. There's going to be multiple different perspectives. And so who you engage with at a smaller scale also affects the power dynamics as to whose voice you can trust and whether or not they trust you. And things can be complicated. And I, I don't always know all the details and uh, histories and places where I might go wrong. So I, I try to be humble and to continue to be guided by my partners. And I, I always, that, that's one of the pressures and the challenges I have that I put on myself is to make sure that I am always conscious about the possibility that my work might not be desired by everyone in a place and to be cognizant of that and stop if it actually means that there's people who disagree with the work being done. Yeah, I mean, that's such a tricky trap to potentially fall into. And, and this is also, again, an, an important critique within the literature on community-based management, right? We, we've had this idea that, okay, communities can manage their own resources. And that was related to, right, in the 80s and 90s, this big trend towards, it's kind of ironic to use the word big there, but this strong push towards decentralization and development and conservation. And then a critique of that was, well, look, there is no actual mythical magical community, just in my own mind, as there is no mythical magical market. These are, these are actual people with heterogeneous interests um, that we can't just kind of consolidate into some kind of unitary identity. But I think it's, it's a surprisingly easy trap to fall into kind of intellectually and maybe emotionally, I'm not sure. Because even when you use the word like First Nation, right, that kind of in, in my mind implies like a unitary as an outsider it's easy for my brain to think okay that is like a group of people 
and my brain's not aware of the individuals who might have different interests, different perspectives, et cetera. I feel like you get that information. You're aware of the heterogeneity once you actually get to know a group or a community. But from the outside, it's easy to kind of simplify. Yeah, and I think being aware of those complexities and when they matter and when, when they don't so much, when it's in the interest to um, be seen as being a unified voice, which often it is, and that's partly why this umbrella organization works with the four First Nations, because they realize that their voice together is gonna to be stronger than each individual nation's voice. So I think, again, just following the guidance of people I work with there, and also understanding the complexities that often that history has brought. And this is where it's so important to understand history. And just one example in um, British Columbia and Canada in general is that there's generally two different governance within uh, First Nations. There's the elected chief and council and then there's the hereditary chief and council. And different nations operate very differently as to how closely those two work together. And one of them is under the Indian Act, the colonial Indian Act that governs indigenous peoples. That's the elected council and the hereditaries outside of that, the longstanding chiefdomships. Yeah, I mean, that's, but that's really important, right? In, in my mind, I am interpreting that via this distinction between formal and informal governance. I mean, it also reminds me of a very similar situation that I experienced in South Africa, um, leading on the, the Dharmouth off-campus program there, there are these hereditary chieftaincies or chieftainships. And then layered on top of that is this more formal government. And it sounds like a very similar situation, at least in that way. Are those, um, I imagine those are sometimes in tension. They can be, it really depends on the place and sometimes the issue. Mm -hmm. um, so again, that's one of the complexities to be aware of. And then on challenges, I think another challenge in doing community engaged work, really no matter the partner, is wanting to communicate that work to a whole bunch of different audiences. So always back to the partners, but then um, academically through publications. And so it often creates it means doing a lot more work than if you're just a scientist wanting to study um, theoretically important stuff and publish it in journals. Because in addition to publishing in journals, it's always gonna be doing community presentations, uh, creating infographics or writing newsletter articles, whatever, all the other possibilities of reaching out to people about the work that was done and throughout a project trying to keep them engaged. So I feel like those of us that do community engaged work tend to have quite a large workload and trying to, trying to meet all the different needs of the different partners and the different audiences that we work with and want to engage with. Along those lines, Natalie, I'm interested in, you know, as you're communicating some of your findings in journals, for example, what are the most salient? So in the, in the readings that you shared with me, you're talking about these salient, man, like the management strategies and, types and, and how that relates to the social organization of First Nations. What in those findings do you think are most um, important to communicate, say in a journal um, versus like in some other form? Like what are, the, what are the things that struck you as being most important? 
before the this work that I shared with you, um, that case study with the Kirisu Hehe's First Nation, in addition to those academic journals, we had a very long confidential report that was much more detailed and had a lot more names and examples about the marine governance of the Kirisu Hehe's peoples. So they have a the they in this case being the um, Kirisu Hehe's stewardship um, authority, uh, which is sort of one of the organizations and the stewardship director is a co-author on these papers, Denise Loss. So they have a, a detailed report that has a lot more detail than these publications do. So in that case, it was working really closely with the Kirisu Hehe stewardship authority um, and multiple of their staff members and uh, documenting work in a lot more detail than what we what they would want to share with a general audience. Interesting. Well, so to you, Natalie, professionally, like what were the most interesting findings from your perspective? Like what surprised you that you can share about these traditional management practices? What kind of made you, made you say, ah, oh, like that's, I wasn't necessarily expecting that based on like my past experiences. And what might surprise someone else who doesn't know these systems very well? Yeah, I think maybe it's easier to think about what might surprise someone else. And it's kind of the one of the things that I spoke about earlier, which is that conservation is not thought of as a separate thing that people do. Like when in our society, in our Western society, we tend to think about conservation as an additional thing that, you know, we attempt to achieve. But it's not ingrained in our worldview about how the world should be. And here, there's, um, there's a lot more um, emphasis on stewardship and I guess you could call it a land and sea ethic that's really embedded within the worldviews. And the part of that is what I mentioned earlier that um, stewardship and conservation does not necessarily mean, in fact, it doesn't mean not using places. It's not this paradigm that we have of let's exclude people and all will be well. It's kind of the opposite. If, if people are not there to steward the land and sea, to take care of the land and sea, then th that land and sea is also broken because the kinship cycle of you know, every, everything being connected and people being part of that system would then also be broken. Yeah, that is a lot to take in. I mean, I'm used to thinking about, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of gauging the extent to which my brain is pretty, like in some ways very firmly enmeshed in like the Western way of viewing things as seeing use. I mean, right, I think about like collective action problems based on like resource over extraction. And I engage with folks who work at like the conservation bingos who are very like professional conservation actors. Um, I do think to some extent, I'm kind of reflecting on this, that it's a little bit of a leap for me still to think about like use and, and use and conservation and stewardship as potentially being integrated. I can give you one example, which doesn't come from my own work specifically, but I think is pretty apt and that's um, related to sea gardens or sometimes called clan gardens. So these are structures that have been built or some of them have been dated thousands of years from the past, but it's basically in the intertidal, um, often there'd be pretty rocky areas. And so First Nations people through time 
built rock walls that allowed sediment to fill in the, um, and create a gentler slope. So basically creating beaches or what was called clam gardens or sea gardens that increase habitat for clams, which they uh, are, are a key culturally important food. And so and engaging with the environment in this, in this case means creating habitat that favors certain species, but in general, um, it's not only clams, it's a few different species of bivalves, but then the garden walls themselves, the rock walls harbor a whole bunch of different species. So it's an example where people's engagement with the environment actually increases biomass and increases diversity. Wow. Yeah, and I think that's one of the really interesting things here is uh, trying to get out of our mindset that we have been taught about conservation and we know how conservation works and being open to other ways of thinking about conservation. Because I think well, clearly we haven't been very successful in stopping extinctions and reversing the biodiversity crisis that we're in. So we need all sorts of solutions to look towards and those by indigenous peoples with the diversity of cultures and practices that we see around the world might really be able to open some additional opportunities of how we can approach these global crises. Yeah, Natalie, I'm thinking about, this is making me reflect on a criticism I've heard of a lot of environmental and conservation oriented policy and planning is that it's really trying to be less bad that it's not addressing underlying drivers. It's let's pollute less, let's conserve a bit more to some extent at the margins, but we're not changing the fundamental, some, a lot of people would say capitalistic drivers of all of our problems that are related also to this separation between people and nature. And we're not gonna be able to get beyond being less bad if we don't become more integrated in the ways you're talking about. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And that's um, part of what I was trying to get at when I said earlier that, at least with this case study here with the Kirisuhehe's peoples, that stewardship is really part of who they are. It's not a separate thing, stewardship and conservation in the way that we would interpret that. It's, it's not like this you know, additional thing that we do on, while continuing to do our extractive, exploitative practices. It's... Uh, it's part of their being. Yeah, what a thing. What a, it's just quite a, what, quite a change to contemplate. I mean, I think there's also this issue of it's, and maybe this is happening with me right now, like it's, it's one thing to kind of intellectualize these things when you read about them. It's another thing to kind of contemplate via some kind of such psychological thought experiment, what it would be like to have this different perspective, to not have conservation be this, professional sector, essentially. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is for the interview. I'm just having a moment. Um, maybe it's the food poisoning too, I don't know. Um, so Natalie, moving forward, are there directions that you want your work to take um, based on what's, you know, what you've been talking about? Are you more or less hoping to you know, continue to find windows of opportunity and take them when they fit with, you know, the relationship you have with your partners? Are there new types of projects you're hoping to conduct? And if so, what would those be? Yeah, so in, I guess the next few years, I envision 
carrying on along similar lines to what I have been doing. So I've been talking with a number of um, indigenous, mostly indigenous partners about projects and needs that they have that we might be able to fill by adding capacity of having a student or two dedicated to some of those projects. Um, and I, I really love that. I, I, love, I love the fact that I know people well enough to now be approached to be asked, can like, hey, we've kind of have this need and can we work together? And if I can, if I can play that role as a researcher and using my privilege to be at a university and to have wonderful students, uh, I am glad to continue doing that and I hope to continue doing that. I think one thing that I have not done as well that I might try to put more attention towards is also engaging with higher level policymakers in Canada. So, so far a lot of my partners have those connections, but I know I could do more in reaching out to some of those other audiences myself as a researcher. That's not for research projects, that falls into that other bucket of wanting to continue reaching other audiences that can affect some change. And I guess one particular area that I hope to be able to engage with is um, something that I can't really say all that much about, but is termed fisheries reconciliation. And there's uh, discussions amongst First Nations and the federal government to right some past wrongs about how First Nations people were pushed out of fisheries. And I think there's some interesting potential there to rethink at least some aspects of fisheries management. So it's not lost on me that the term reconciliation there is also in this um, truth and reconciliation process that you mentioned, which I'm also aware of is, is, you know, there's a famous one that happened in South Africa after the apartheid regime. Is, is that word, you know, I imagine it's purposefully used there. There's, yeah, reconciliation gets used quite um, broadly and liberally in Canada, often by politicians who say they're working towards reconciliation. So that doesn't always have a lot of uh, practical on the ground meaning associated with it. There's a lot of promises and not a, not a ton of action as yet, I would say. Okay. That's promising that it's at least being talked about as an aspiration. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Incoming Podcast is produced by myself, Stefan Partolo, and Courtney Hemmen-Wagner. We are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To listen to more episodes, you can go to your local podcasting app and to our website, incommonpodcast.org. There you will also find our blog and a link to our Patreon account that you can use to give us a small donation to help us cover operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at InCommonPod.